Hello, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave. I'm here with Brooke, and today we have a treat. We are talking with Noah Gift, who's a Duke EIR for data science and AI. Thank you, sir, so much for coming to the show. Happy to be here. So we had an offline conversation about this before around one of my new favorite programming languages of all time, Rust. <laughs> and how that fits into this world of AI and machine learning and, and all of those things. So I can't wait to talk about that. Before we jump in, let's just talk a little bit about your career journey and how you got to where you are today in this space. Yeah, so my career journey is probably not replicatable because uh, it's it's very strange. So I, I started- <laughs> Those are all good journeys, right? Yeah, so I, I started in, um, the LA area, uh, working in television, I think it's maybe regional on that, like, you know, wherever you're at, you're going to have things that you can do that will, will apply to that region. So, you know, living in LA area, a lot of people work in TV and film. And so my dad yeah. had a production company. So I would do like lighting and camera, oh, wow. all that kind of stuff. I mean, from a very young age. And then I was an editor as a teenager, like part-time job, I actually got a pretty cool part-time job. I was actually editing live uh, national, you know, network television. <laughs> like, like, so, so I had some really yeah. cool early, you know, Did you ever era. use, I just have to ask. And if I show you on this camera, you'll see it. Did you ever use the new tech video toaster with Amigas or any of that stuff? Why does that sound familiar? I'm not it sure. It was early broadcasting days. Like it was when, when Commodore and New Tech came on the scene, you could for like just a, a, a tenth of the cost, you could actually edit it and it became a really big thing. Wow. Yeah. It, and it, I it, have one over there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the early days of, of TV were actually very similar to what's going on in cloud because the analog stuff was shifting to digital and I mean every year there's some new thing like there's Grass Valley and then Avid and then you know like there's just so many of these these uh technology stacks but it, it's it's you know to to the point you bring up like that's that kind of got me started on the tech and then I you know ended up at Caltech worked there for a few years in IT and then because I had a mixture of TV skills and some programming skills then I started to go back into the industry and worked in film for a while. So I worked for wow. Disney Feature Animation on their first 3D animated pipelines, also Sony Imageworks, and also uh, later I went to New Zealand, worked on Avatar, and all of the film stuff. I think not many people worked know on this. Avatar. Wow. Yeah, Avatar. I got film credits for that. And uh, it's basically data engineering. I mean, film is basically data engineering. So uh, when people are looking for data engineers, if they if they were really savvy, they should look for some film people because they were doing networked file systems and high performance computing way way back in the '90s, and and uh, it was a good kind of preparation. But then I ended up in the Bay Area, working in another film studio, and then I decided to shift to tech and and started. Uh, you know, working at startups and even ran a sports social network as the CTO slash general manager for several years. And, you know, we, it was successful enough that we had some pretty big people and just didn't work out. But after that, I decided to focus on more what I'm doing today, which is consulting, writing books, creating content. 
One of the things I've been really obsessed with lately is thinking about when I got lucky, because I have a very strange career path as well. And just thinking if there's like moments of serendipity or just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, can you think about any times that's happened for you with getting into where you are now with AI and machine learning, given that you've had such a wild road to get here? Yeah, I think for AI and machine learning, it would be that one of the things that was a little bit lucky, I guess, would be that I decided that I wanted to get a master's degree in business so that I could get a little bit deeper into statistics. So it was less about like, I wanted to be an MBA, but it was that I, I was in my 30s and I was like, look, I have no options here. And uh, what do I what do I do? I want to I want to do more like kind of predictions and things like that. And one of the things that was interesting was that that was actually a really good, you know, accidental period of time. I think there was just like 2010 where there was a ton of of linear regression and and statistics stuff that was merging with Python and Rust and and even in the business school, I remember I got a, a little bit of a bad reputation for for like telling the teachers like, hey, why can't we use Python or R for this? And I even had a teacher that got so angry that they basically said, you can't take my class because I was oh annoying the teacher. <laughs> but it, that that like that essentially was 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 accidentally put me right in the right spot to do machine learning really, really early in, in getting machine learning into production. That's so good. I think if you're getting a bad reputation in business school, that means you're doing it correctly. From what I know about it. I love that. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that. So it's 2010, you're seeing AI, you're seeing ML, you know, the, the cheese is moving, right? So it's, it's new technologies coming into that. How do you view Rust in this space? You know, what is it, what is it bringing and how does that kind of like fit into all of this? So I think in 2010, I believe that's, I don't even know if Rust was developed yet because I, th I think it's been around for about 10 years or, or so. And so it is an interesting time though, because I, I think if you look at languages like Python R, at some period of time, they were really looked at as like, oh, what is this? You know, why are you using Python? Why are you using R? And I feel like with Rust in, in particular now, we're seeing the same thing where some of the, the obviously Python has been wildly successful. But if you look at some of the problems with Python, one of the problems is concurrency is just not really something that it's good at. It's actually very, very bad at, at doing concurrency. And there's even some stuff right now where they're going to make the um, the lock on threads, true threads optional. And, and and so it's I think what we're seeing now is some of the same things I saw with Python early on is that that there are new new languages. So like Rust, I think is roughly like 10, 11 years old, if I remember correctly, is that the modern um, languages can address the shortcomings of the languages that came from before. And I think it's a good way to put this would be if you look at the history of the automobile industry, I mean, there was electric cars early and then the autumn, the, the gas cars came after that. And then there was this whole period of time where, you know, America made really bad cars for a couple of decades. And then, and then kind of things go back and forth. 
and and now we're seeing these transitionary technologies like you know a car that has like a two gallon tank for gas and then it has like electric battery and you and i think we're seeing this with python and rust and that python is is kind of hoping to like hack together some weird stuff that like kind of solves the concurrency security portability problems but i think it's going to be a hack versus a modern compiled language like rust has many attributes that you really want, right? We know that security is a big problem and it's only right. getting worse. That's something that Rust does very well. We also know that concurrency is a big problem. There's nothing to do with Rust. It's already good at it. There's no like extra features. In fact, the compiler will will protect you from doing uh, really bad things for the most part with Rust. And, and so I think what we're seeing is that there's going to be a transition to to modern compiled languages for many tasks like data engineering MLOps. And so that, that might be a good place to frame it. Yeah, definitely. I think some people struggle with, they've categorized Rust in their head as this like secret third thing for a long time. And it's not, uh, they don't view it as a mature language, even though it is. Have there been any moments of maturity that made it seem much more real and uh legitimate, I guess, especially for the purposes of data engineering and machine learning that you can remember? Yeah, I think, you know, really it was about a year and a half ago or so. The, the, the moment that really made me focus on Rust was that I've been using Python for over 20 years and written multiple books on Python, done, built companies with Python. And I I've really was enraged, I guess would be the right word, at the packaging system in Python in my opinion, it's on a scale of one to 10, one being bad and 10 being great. Python's is one. Like it, you can't get worse than Python's packaging system. And in fact, there's multiple versions of packaging. There's like, you know, you could have essentially like an infinite amount of packaging systems you could find probably on Python, all competing with all potentially bad solutions. And and I, it was at this point when I when I realized that I just don't want to do this anymore. Like, yeah. it's just like, I, I'm kind of, I'm done. It was like, you know, I'm just going to walk away from this and let me see what's out there. And I, I looked around and, and Rust, the packaging system is so simple. You put a file, you know, a name in, in the cargo file and you just say cargo run and it pulls it in. That's it. And then you take the project and you give somebody the binary. So I think that was the moment, like about a year and a half ago, I was like, and then as I started to dive into it more, I was like, oh, this also solves the security problem. Oh, this also yeah. solves the safety problem. Oh, this also solves the concurrency problem. It just solves so many problems. Like, wait, what am I doing? So, And then I started to look into the solutions. And yeah, PyTorch works great with Rust. GPU PyTorch works great with Rust. Lambda works great with Rust. I mean, uh, Polar's data frames work, work great, great with Rust. You just start looking down the, down the, the line, you're like, what doesn't work with Rust? Everything works with Rust. Can you talk a little bit about Lambda? I know you had a discussion on uh, a social media about Lambda and you know what what Python and Rust, how that is actually using resources and kind of that Lambda serverless space. Can you talk a little bit? Because I think that speaks to the power of Rust. In that. yes, I think if you if you look at one of the problems in energy inefficiency or energy efficiency right now is what is the default container that you're using? Like, so if you're, if you have a, 
you know, a jacked up pickup truck that has like, I don't know, you know, an eight cylinder engine and it's like, you know, getting four miles to the gallon. I mean, it's kind of fun to like see it and look at it and everything, but is that really the vehicle that you want to commute a hundred miles both ways? You know, probably not, right? You're, you're going to just be, you know, burning a lot of money in gas and it's just going to be super inefficient. I think it's the same thing with Lambda is that like, let's, you know, really look at it. Like, what is it? It's, it's a virtualization where the choices have been removed for you for your benefit, right? You ideally would want to pick the smallest possible virtualization that you could get. And, and ideally your code just fits right inside of there. So right. this is where one of the flaws that's fatal for Python exists in that Python was developed before the the internet existed right in its current form like it was it was developed before www like there i remember this i was actually in high school there was like you know CompuServe and all this other stuff and, yeah. and, and that's the era that that uh, python was built in they're like come on multi-core machines like what they weren't thinking about that you know the the, right. the the developer but later now we do care about it and we care actually quite a bit about threads and concurrency and so one of the things you hear a lot of python people say is that oh yeah you just spin up processes that solves all the problems so like if the uh, lambda instance that you get has four cores oh just spin four threads up or four four processes up it's like no that's not what you do because processes are extremely inefficient because they take so much memory Python, by the way, is also already, if not the worst, one of the worst languages at memory, right, in terms of energy. And so right. you're basically taking something that Python is the worst at, which is uh, using memory, and you're making it even worse inside of Lambda versus with Rust, it's the one of the most efficient languages at a C-level type performance. And you don't need to do these weird tricks with like threads or whatever with processes, you can actually use off the shelf um, concurrency. Like there's a library called Rayon and it automatically will use all the four cores. And, and you can, in many oh, cases wow. with a Lambda, use the smallest possible Lambda instance and essentially use AWS for free. Like, and then versus, a, you know, a Python user has to do all these weird tricks and, to get it even to work. And you're just burning money for no reason. So I think that's the one of the, I would say one of the most strong cases for Rust is if you use Lambda with Python, you should really look into whether you could replace it with Rust because the cost could be a hundred times cheaper. It, it really depends on your scenario or maybe more. And, and, and then that's not even the full story, which is you also now have a deployment story that's maybe a hundred times better because there's a library that someone at AWS wrote called Cargo Lambda, and it's just so simple. It's hard to describe how simple the deployment is with Cargo Lambda and Rust. If you take a Python and uh, you know versus Lambda, and you have some complex things in there, you know, I feel sorry for you. It is it is it is so unpleasant to 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 install really complex Python projects to to Lambda. Yeah, I'll make yeah. sure I add that to the show notes. And if the money savings are not enough for you, um, I think it's also really important to remember the sustainability benefits as well. Uh, you know, there's like a 2017 paper. I know I know about the 2017 one because that's in the file name when I saved it, but I'm 
don't know if they've <laughs> updated it recently. Uh, but there's this paper that goes through and compares lots of different languages uh, for energy, time, and memory. And you can see full benchmarking there in the paper, which we will add in the show notes. But uh, yeah, I think it's really important, especially for lots of companies are caring more about ESG. Lots of companies are hoping their developers will just pick up on this. Um, and there's lots of things as machine learning engineers, especially, there's so many things that you can do to make these little incremental differences with sustainability. And this is just one in the bucket. Um, if there's people that have been working in Python for a really long time, and now after listening to this podcast episode, they really want to figure out how to get started with Rust. Um, do you have any pointers for either resources they could use or just mental models that will help people to sort of grok the difference of those languages and then how they can work in both? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if if the new advances in machine learning weren't here, where we have things like Code Whisper, I, I think it would be a little more challenging to tell someone to to go to Rust. One of the things we haven't even brought up is that we're in the middle of a renaissance with these, you know, AI uh, pair programming assistants. And I think if I was going to recommend someone that was a Python programmer how to get up to date on Rust as quickly as possible, I honestly think that building AWS Lambdas using AWS Code Whisper and Cloud9 would probably be the fastest possible way to get up to speed. I think it's easy to boil the ocean and oh, I need to read four books, and I you're gonna you're gonna be stuck there forever. I think it's better to just build something, and with the, that tool chain in particular. AWS Lambda, Cloud9, Code Whisper, I think you're done. I think you could learn Rust in a couple of days, at least enough to, to, to build little things. And then you just keep learning you know, as you need to. Yeah. For people who don't know what we're talking about, Amazon Code Whisperer is an AI, well, I call it a sidekick, but I think the official line is Coding Companion. <laughs> and so it works in either your IDE, which can be VS Code or IntelliJ family or Cloud9, as you mentioned, or it also works in the Lambda console directly now. And I oh, believe wow. I the SageMaker know. Studio they added in addition, which is really helpful. And it can generate either single lines or full function code blocks that can help you to figure out what you're doing. I think at last count, it was like 15 different languages, but I know for sure Python and Rust are in that list. And it's really helpful when you're figuring out how best to do things because it's going to, I don't know, so it's like autocomplete, but then it does other things on top of that, like the reference tracker um, and the security scans. It's just like there to make sure you're not wronging yourself, uh, which is someone who wrongs themselves constantly. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, that, <laughs> I find that, it very helpful. Well, that, and I think that's an another, there's all these little threads when you start pulling them out that are worth discussing. And one of them is that if we're using tools like Code Whisper to generate code, you have to now be really thoughtful about the fact that up to 80% of your code potentially could be written by one of these tools. So if the language you're using is has a reputation for being really mean and it won't compile like Rust, that's exactly what you want. When you have a tool that is helping you write code, that, that's what you want. Is you want a language that is the meanest possible language where the compiler says, nope, I'm not compiling this code. Yeah. If you have a code that's the softest, nicest language that literally you can create runtime errors, not a good fit. 
for the era that we're headed into. And I think not a lot of people have talked about that. Yeah, you want the pain during development and not ahead of time. And I know Rust with how it has, you know, we talked a little bit about this when we had Tim on and just how it forces you to do all of the testing and and everything that could possibly happen ahead of time. Have you seen that with when you're when in this space that you're doing and when you're teaching students of, you know, in ML ops and like just what that does and what that forces you to do as far as testing and, and looking at all this, you know, has that been very beneficial? As yeah, I, th- I think it has in, in that, you know, I'll, a few different examples I can think of is that, yeah. you know, I think we went overboard with Python and also with notebooks. I, I think they're obviously useful. It's obviously useful to use Python. It's obviously useful to use Jupyter Notebooks. But if you start digging in again, pulling the threads on it, it, I'm just frankly shocked that people are saying that Jupyter Notebook is MLOps. And, and I'm like, wait, what do, you, what do you mean it's MLOps? Well, yeah, you just take this notebook and then you run it. Like, you mean the thing that does procedural code that you can't test? Right. That's that's your solution? Wait, wait, what? You know, like it just, it's like if you start to kind of pull it out, like what is MLOps? Like let's define it. Like I wrote a couple of books on it. I'll tell you exactly what MLOps is. It is DevOps with some other stuff on top. So right. what is DevOps? Well, it's continuous integration. So you tell me how you test a Jupyter Notebook. The answer is you don't. So, so why, why are you telling people this is MLOps? It has nothing to do with operationalizing code. You know, if you said, yeah. I'm going to do charts and things like that. So that's a great example where instead of doing that, I mean, not that you maybe want to do some stuff and visualize it in a notebook, that's fine. But with Rust, you're from the very beginning designing the system so it'll work forever. And I think that's really what you get with Rust is is I have been very surprised, I guess, at how often I go to a Rust project and I just run Cargo Run and it just works. Like almost never does it not work. A Python project, oh, I mean, who knows what could have happened, you know, some elf somewhere is fiddling with some project file or you know like it's not an elf it's me on a different day like it's not (laughs) i think it's one of those pieces of the maturity puzzle as well that comes into it like as someone that's been in data science for a while for so long just like no one cared what i was doing (laughs) so the amount of times you would write code just knowing full well that no one would ever ask you about this as long as you should live so it just is a totally different mindset to what you're talking about with just being able to do cargo run for Rust and it actually working. And when I'm looking at lots of machine learning teams that I interact with now, this maturity that they're trying to get across the organization is from this one dev, one computer mindset to being able to actually work collaboratively in a team, which I don't know, people always say that DevOps is all about people, but this is one of the big reasons that MLOps is very, very similar to DevOps is that it is a portion of tech, but so much of it is a cultural change as well. Do you have any tips for teams making this cultural shift towards either a DevOps or an MLOps mindset um, or either big pitfalls that they could maybe avoid? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's easy to to say DevOps is a hire or DevOps is not my problem. I mean, I've had or MLOps is somebody else's job like that. I mean, when I was a manager, that would boy, that would burn me up. <laughs> when someone would say like DevOps is not my job. That's we need to hire DevOps. Like you mean the stuff that makes it work? 
that's not your right. job. Like, I mean, of course it's your job. Right. Like the whole, our, our job is to make stuff work. So I think the mindset is to, to really think more holistically, like, you know, about what your job is. Your job isn't to make some toy. Your job is to build something that lasts, that's maintainable. And actually DevOps is respecting people because if you build stuff that is really easy to debug and easy to deploy, and as you know, like you said, has ESG capabilities where you know it has great sustainability. Like you're not making someone clean up your mess. I think that's really what DevOps and MLOps is: is really being thoughtful about the fact that this is something that will have to be maintained. And the way I like to think about software is it's a lot like a little puppy, you know, where where it's not like you're you're building some you know concrete shed somewhere where you build it once and it like you're building something that's alive and will be alive for a long time in many scenarios. And, and if you don't think that way, you're going to create problems. But if you're respectful about your team, you will build things that are high quality because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. In Australia, in my house, I had a big piece of art that said, be who you needed when you were younger. And I always joke that I built a career on it, but genuinely, and it's a big part of why I care so much about MLOps, especially because it's like, if you imagine yourself as a junior coming into this code base and into the team, are you giving them the best shot at being able to figure out what's actually happening and develop as part of the team in a way that makes sense? I think there's like a, a always a big move of trying to make it hard for the young people coming through, but like we're not working at big law firms. So <laughs> we should set the stage for making it easier for new types of developers to come through as well. And that's like the thing that gets me most excited about MLOps. Uh, can you think of different ways that using Rust helps people to collaborate or does it help people collaborate when they're working on these big projects as a large team? Yeah, I think so. So I, I think one of the things is that with Rust, it makes it a lot easier for you to deploy the software internally initially. So if you wanted to give someone a command line tool that does data engineering or MLOps or inference, Rust, there's nothing to do. It, it has binary-based deployment. In fact, with some of the new formats like Onyx, you can embed a, MM, an, a uh, ML uh, model right in the binary and you could oh, just wow. give somebody, yeah, like, so you could, you could easily take like an LLM or something and just put it into the binary and just say, here we go. So right. like, that, that's a great way to collaborate with people is to focus on being able to give them command line tools. Have you found, you know, any useful Rust libraries, frameworks, anything like this where it's, you know, maybe you have some examples where it's really in the real world helped? Yeah. So I have, I have a repo called Rust MLOps template oh, in GitHub add, add that, this, yeah. that has a, a lot of, like a lot of examples. And I have some of them in there. I would say that the Rust PyTorch it is pretty good. And that, that would be one I would definitely recommend. Polars is another one for data frames is very, very good. And then in terms of other things in MLOps, there's also something from the company Sonos uh, that they have actually a really interesting thing that they're developing where they've been embedding uh, Onyx models inside of Rust binaries. Those are a wow. few that I can think of. But what I'm what I'm starting to see is that the data engineering space is starting to become kind of a no-brainer. So, like things like Polars, uh, you'll you'll see people you, you know using it. And then also, I think the embedded machine learning model in the binary is also kind of a no-brainer. Like, I mean, like you think about deployment. I mean, you could build once and deploy many. So, I think those are the those are the I would say Onyx 
Onyx in particular is one of the ones I'm most excited about, which does have Rust bindings uh, supported for it because you can build a model, you can maybe build it, you know, train it with SageMaker, et cetera, export it into an Onyx format, and then easily Rust will just, you know, slurp it in, and then you just deploy it to maybe deploy it to Lambda, which I have some examples actually of Onyx with EFS and Lambda works actually very well. Or you could deploy it to a command line tool, or you could deploy it to a website. So you literally build this thing once, and you deploy it to like ten different things. I think the Onyx Rust story is very good. This is incredible. You seem like someone who's really just like continued to evolve with the tech industry and new things that are coming out. But how do you find all of these new wonderful blog posts from Sonus about the new embeddings, or how do you keep track of all of this? Just because there's so much information coming from everywhere yeah. all the time, all at once. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think part of it is that I'm a little bit lucky because I don't have a regular job, so I can just find things I'm interested in and pursue them. Where I'll, I'll put it this way: if 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 I had a boss right now, a hundred percent last year, they would have said, you can't use Rust. I had so many people tell me not to use Rust. Really? And I just said, nope, I'm going to use it anyway. And it's like, well, why are you doing this? Is because I can. <laughs> because I, I think it's interesting and I, I yeah. got into it. I think the, the, the part of that is what I would recommend to people is if you can keep 20% of your day, and I would even recommend even while people are paying you, where it's kind of secret, you keep it and you follow what you think is best and you continue to work on it. That's a, a way to keep up to date is, and you have no choice as a software engineer. It's like, it would be like being a professional athlete and not being physically fit and saying like, oh, well, you didn't tell me to be in shape. It's like, no, that's, that's like your job as an athlete is to be in shape. Similarly with a programmer or anybody in the tech industry, I think you have to carve out and not, not necessarily tell your manager about it, but just keep it to yourself is figure out what the next things are and just start building stuff with it. And so that's all I do. I'm just building stuff that, that I think is going to be the next thing. I have a little bit more time because I, I can probably spend more than a couple hours a day on it, but that's, that's been my strategy for the last you know 20 years. So good. What are you really excited about when you're saying you're building the next thing? What's got you really excited about 2023 and beyond? I think the, I think that the Rust binary LLM story, I think is going to be a very exciting one where I think we're just getting started with people thinking about it. But I mean, if you imagine all this exciting things that are, that are happening with LLMs, I, I think, you know, people are, oh, look, LLM, LLM, it's like, great. But like, so wait, how do I do this? Like, you know, there, it's like some super complex jigsaw mm -hmm. puzzle but yeah. with LLMs and Rust, that could really open up like a huge new thing where, I mean, people could be using LLMs in Linux utilities. They, I mean, Rust is ideal for building and even replacing a lot of like classic tools like LS or CAD or whatever. Imagine if like Linux, for example, all of a sudden you have these Rust-based LLM tools that do all kinds of really cool things like you know, like infer what you're typing or, you know, do like kind of some kind of, you know, natural language processing on, you know, log files or whatever. So I think that's could potentially be a very interesting space and it could happen very quick is the merging of kind of the systems programming world with LLMs. I love that. And, you know, as someone who went through 
gosh, starting in 2014, I was working with NLU and I helped launch Alexa and I kind of went on that journey. When you go into a hype cycle in tech, which we just, you know, I've been around long enough to see plenty of them. I always have so much respect for the people who kind of say, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that mean when I'm actually in front of a coding window? You know, and Code Whisper is one of those products. I love the team. We've had them on a, a, a couple times and really just thinking about um, like, what does this mean now? And I've always found the Rust community, you know, one of the things you were talking about was, you know, you chose Rust. I continually hear that. All of these developers that I have so much respect for chose Rust. They weren't told to go code in Rust. And that to me says something in when you're in a hype cycle. And I see that in the community too of, you know, like, what does this mean? What do we actually do today? And what do we actually have to think about as a developer in order to write safe code, efficient code, performant code, and all of those things? So I, I love that you're kind of taking it from that perspective. Uh, where can people find you online and everything that you're doing? I think LinkedIn is probably the place where I, I do social. So you can just go to LinkedIn, Noah Gift. And then do do a lot of development on Coursera. That's, I would say, I don't think I've ever not covered AWS. So if, if, you're, <laughs> yeah. if you're interested in like kind of the stuff I teach at graduate business, I'm sorry, not graduate, graduate um, data science and AI, uh, Coursera is a good spot to to uh, take some of my, my courses. I love that. And we have had... Uh... A lot of people that have taken uh, Coursera courses, uh, we've had, uh, you know, Morgan was on and, and that was like an official AWS Coursera course. And you know, I, I love that you're where, where developers are. I'll make sure I include that link. Uh, is there anything, anything you want to leave us with? Anything uh, we didn't yeah. touch on? I think one thing that I would recommend as advice is that, like you said, we're in the hype cycle with ML and especially with, you know, LLMs. And I, I think what, people need to be very careful about is who your business partner is. And not that I'm necessarily shilling for AWS here, but I have not been dis disappointed so far with AWS. Who knows? Right. Maybe I will be in the future. I think you want boring, boring technology. And I think you also want people to be transparent about how they trained models, you know, what are the ethics behind it? Yeah. And also, you know, how, what is that going to mean to your company in the future? What you don't want is to partner with organizations that are going to give you an unpleasant PR surprise in the future. And I think we've seen enough of those uh, happen in the last several years where there's some really scary PR nightmares that have occurred <laughs> that you don't want your co-branding with. So I think what I would say is, you know, really look at your partners in the LLM space and make sure that they're they're really checking the boxes ethically so that you don't get surprised. I love that. And I, I, I appreciate that. You know, where where is this stuff coming from? <laughs> and uh, always being aware of that. So thank you so much for, for taking the time on the show today. The more I do episodes about Rust, the more I just, I get excited about the language and how this actually integrates in the, in the ML AI space and uh, you know, just what you talked about with thinking about Lambda and serverless and everything, just really great. So thank you for your time today. Yeah, happy to share my time anytime.
Brooke, where's the bye? Oh, bye. <laughs>